Okay, well, join me in prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we do give thanks to you, for you are good. You are worthy to be praised. And we praise you for your son is the only one who is worthy and able to open the seals, to redeem us from sin, to consummate his kingdom, and usher in eternal righteousness. We thank you, O Lord, that we have this promise that those who trust in him will be rescued from the judgment to come and will be saved, O Lord, for your kingdom, to see you face to face, to know you heart to heart, to be washed in your love and to bask in your glory. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Gather your people. Establish your kingdom in its fullness. Make your righteousness to be seen in all of creation, we pray. Until then, build us up in your word. Feed us by your word. Strengthen us in faith. Help us to continue, O Lord, this Christian journey. Bless now the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, we began to study in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, as a way of reminding ourselves what it means to be a church. Coming out of sort of a year and a half, almost two years of not meeting regularly as a Christian church, I think that period of time uh, has caused us at least to forget some things that are vital about the Christian church. And maybe even to begin to actively question some things about the church, including whether or not the church is even necessary. I mean, after all, we were in some sense worshiping, watching sermons online, praying in our homes, etc. So was the pandemic a two-year exercise in God proving to us that this thing we've been doing for centuries is not necessary? Or maybe even needs to be completely rethought. Lots of people have different ideas about what the church ought to be. Lots of people have critiques and criticisms. Some of them deserved. Some of them maybe not so much. And lots of people feel a kind of creativity and a kind of innovation. The church should do this or to do that to get this particular kind of result or that long-for outcome. You travel to a bookstore, Christian and secular, and make your way over to where they keep books about the church, and you'll find tons of things written about this is what the church should be in the 21st century. This is what the church should be in Generation Z. This is what the church should be along almost any kind of axis. But is that right? Is the church unnecessary? Is the church outdated? Can we just decide for ourselves, based on our own wisdom, what the church should be like, how to structure it, how to operate it, how to live as the Christian church? Well, I want to suggest to you that the Bible has a lot to say about that. And in fact, our three verses this morning, our short three verses this morning, uh, is, as I said a moment ago, um, really all about that issue how the church should live, how the church should operate. Indeed, this letter and all the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, are all about that issue. What is the church? How she should operate? What does God expect? 
And as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 this morning, I just want to hang our thoughts on, on, two, on two, two things, two observations. Verses 14 to 15, we're told, or, or in this whole section, we're told two things we should know. Number one, we should know how to behave. We should know how to behave in verses 14 and 15. And number two, we should know what to believe, what to believe in verse 16. To be a healthy church, according to God's word, we need to know at least those two things, how to behave and what to believe. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes there, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing th these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When I was a little boy, when kids could still run outside and play, ride their bikes down the street, I would often go to my friend's house, whether it was Lee or Derek or whoever, and my mom would often say two things to me as I was leaving the house. Maybe you had a mom like mine. She would say something like this. Now, when you get down there, you do whatever Miss So-and-so tells you and remember who you are. When you get down there, you do whatever Miss So-and-so tells you. Don't let me hear that you were down there disobeying Miss So-and-so. And remember who you are. Remember, remember specifically who your mama is and our family name, right? And in those two things, she was telling me that, you know, there, there are two aspects to to sort of your life when you go out and about. Number one, there's instruction. Do whatever she tells you. And number two, there's identity. Remember who you are. And that's what we have in verses 14 and 15. Paul writing to uh, Timothy, telling him how to lead the church. And he's telling him, listen, you need to know how to behave. And to know how to behave, you need to know instructions. And you need to know your identity. Verse 14 says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may know how one is to behave in the household of God. Now, we don't naturally or automatically know how to behave as God intends. We don't. In fact, our entire problem has been God has said to do certain things and we've gone the other way. Right? That's what it means to be sinners. God has said that this is righteous, this is holy, this is good. As your creator, this is what I require of you. And in our natural fallen state, we have looked at that and said, nah, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to set my own rules. And so that when it comes to now behaving in the household of God, when it comes to now living as Christians, this is not something that we automatically know. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not like instantly all of God's instructions are downloaded and we play out the, the programming automatically. No, we have to learn, don't we? We need instruction. We need teaching. And that's why Paul is writing this letter, is to give Timothy instructions on how we ought to behave as God's people. 
Now, I want to suggest to you that this implies at least three things. And Paul says here, listen, I want to come to you, but I might get delayed. So I'm going to write this letter to you so that you would know how people ought to behave. I want to suggest to you that that, will, that, that implies at least three things. Number one, that when it comes to learning to live as God requires of us, we cannot rely on human beings to always be there and teach us. Paul says, I want to come to you but I might get delayed. And we know what kind of delays could pop into the Apostle Paul's life. I mean, he might get beat up at the next town, right? He might be shipwrecked somewhere. Paul's life is always kind of in danger because of the gospel and because of his taking the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. He says, now, I want to come to you soon. I want to be there with you. I want to instruct you in these things personally. But guess what? I'm not there now, and I might not get there when I want to be there. So you're going to need some instructions that are more reliable than the presence of man. Where do we get those instructions? In God's kindness, we get them written for us in this book. The very thing that Paul was doing when he was writing that letter was, was being moved by the Holy Spirit to write down the very thoughts of God, to inscripturate the mind of God to give us the Bible, to give us the teaching. And so it is now. We don't have the Apostle Paul with us. I can't carry the Apostle Paul's books. Nobody is as inspired as Paul was uniquely in the history of the church. Well, how do we know how to operate as a church? It's by what thus saith the Lord. It's by the word of God. We need this instruction more than we need. We need the word of God more than we need the leadership of men. Now, it's clear leadership matters, right? That's what most of 1 Timothy 3 has been about. But listen, let me tell you something. An elder, a pastor, a bishop, a deacon, or deaconess without a Bible is an elder, a pastor, a deacon, a deaconess, a bishop without authority. We have no authority in the life of the Christian church apart from that authority God has invested in his word. And so we need this instruction. And our lives need to be built on it. And we can't rely on human beings to always be there. Here's another thing we can't rely on. We can't rely on our own natural thinking. Can't rely on our own natural thinking. I mean, the Bible tells us this over and over in so many ways. Isaiah 55, verse 9. Remember what God says there? For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. No matter how high we think we climb in righteous ways and in godly wisdom, the distance between us and God is infinite. The, the, the gap between God's wisdom and our wisdom can't be closed by, by human effort. So we can't rely on our, our own wisdom, our own natural thinking. Isn't this why Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 2, those words that are, that are so well known, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the what? Renewal of your mind. Or as Paul would say again in Ephesians chapter 4, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Why? Because our sinful minds were hostile to God. Our sinful minds were, were full of so much waste, so much gunk, um, so much ungodliness. So deep is that that we, we don't even know the depths of it, right? 
This is why as a Christian, as we're living as Christians and, and we're giving ourselves to God's word and by God's grace, we're, we're growing in God's word. This is why we keep, we keep sort of discovering sort of depths of sin that we didn't know were there. Like, I didn't know that ran that deep. Dag, I keep, that thing keeps following me. Well, it's because down to the root of our beings, we're sinners. And the renewal that has to happen has to happen deeper and deeper and deeper until we are being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ himself. That's a lifelong project for us. It won't be finished until the day we see Jesus. And then when we see him, we'll be like him. So we can't rely on our own natural thinking if we need instruction to know how to live as God's people. Number three, we can't rely on our traditions to tell us how to behave in the church. Oh, how we love our traditions. How we love the way we do things, how we grew up doing them, how, how mama did them, how grandmama did them, how the church back home did it. We love our traditions. We got the same problem, beloved, I trust you know this, that the Pharisees had. You remember when Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7? That, that entire chapter is almost about, entirely about the traditions of the Pharisees, these religious um, Jewish people versus the command of God. And you remember what Jesus told them about their tradition? That their, their traditions leave the commandment of God no room. That it makes the word of God of no effect. How often is a fresh word from God squeezed out of our lives because we're so fascinated with our own tradition. We're so fascinated with the way things have been done by those who have gone before us that we imagine that God has not said anything to us other than what has already been said to our ancestors. And so the power of God through the word of God gets muffled gets gagged, gets stopped up. And what Paul is telling us here, just as he alludes to giving Timothy instructions, he's telling us that proper worship of God is not according to man's leadership, it's not according to natural thinking, and not according to the traditions of men, that the proper worship of God depends on God's own leadership and depends on supernatural revelation. God speaking through the scripture as we have it in the word of God. So in order to behave properly, we need this book. In order to know what God asks of us, we need this book, to be dedicated to this book and to know the instructions, the content of this book. But we not only need instructions, we also need to know our identity. For our behavior to have integrity, it must be consistent with our identity. We must behave according to God's word as God's people. Let me make up an illustration here. Imagine going home, sitting down for Sunday dinner. I know you've had the Instapot fired up or the Crock-Pot fired up or whatever. Dinner is smelling good. The house is just filled with aroma. You sit down, the whole family sit down, the, the plates are made and uh, you hear the doorbell ring, and then shortly after, you hear the door open. Nobody's gone to the door. The door just opens. Somebody walks into the house, kicks off their shoes, takes the jacket off, hangs the jacket up, comes into the house, greets everybody lovingly, greets the whole house. 
goes over, gets a plate, comes to the table, pulls up a chair, begins to put food on the plate, and is perfectly respectful, seems to live by the rules according to your house, but nobody knows who it is. Now, does it matter that they follow the rules of the house? Does it matter that they seem to be respectful and kind and outwardly all these wonderful things? No, you like, uh, what's your name? Where you from? You don't know his identity or her identity. And the fact that you don't know their identity really causes you to lose confidence in their behavior, doesn't it? So Paul is saying here now, in order to behave the way God intends us to, we not only need instruction, but we need to know our identity as well. That guy's behavior may be great, but his identity is in question. We must not only behave according to God's word, but we must live as God's people. Now, we get that from the three phrases that Paul uses to describe us. Notice there he talks about how we ought to behave in the household of God, which he then clarifies is the church of the living God, which he then describes as a pillar and buttress of the truth. All of those are ways of him referring to us who believe. So he calls us, first of all, the, the household of God. Now, he's not referring to a building. He's referring to the, to the people in the same way that we sometimes refer to our household. We don't mean a physical address. We mean the people who live in our house with us. So it is with God. God has a household. Now, this helps make sense of why in earlier in chapter 3, around verse 4, he says that overseers must be able to manage their own households well, because if they can't, how can they take care of God's church? It makes sense of why a little bit later, uh, around verse 12 or so, he says that deacons must be able to manage their own households well. The little household, our little natural households, are pictures of God's great household. And that's who we are. We, we are God's family through adoption, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is the father of this household. Not the bishops, the overseers, the pastors, the deacons, deaconesses. God is your father. He has adopted you and loved you from before the world began. And he has brought you into his kingdom, which feels a little bit impersonal. That's why I like the word household. It's not just brought you in his kingdom as some far off subjects. He's brought you to his very table in his household as his children. And if we're going to behave in the household of God as we ought, we got to know this about our identity. More fundamental than our natural family is our relationship and our participation in this spiritual family as God's household. Well, well who is God's household? Well, it's the church of the living God. Now, we get used to using the word church as a, as a word especially describing Christians gathering together or our, our sort of relationship as a, as a Christian church. But the word church there from the Greek is a, an ordinary Greek word. It, it means almost any kind of assembly. So you'll, use it, you'll see it used in the New Testament sometimes to refer to political gatherings. It's an assembly, an ecclesia. You use it sometimes referred even to uh, mobs, when mobs would gather and attack the apostle. It's, it's called an ecclesia, an assembly, a gathering. 
But we have come to use this term to refer very specifically to this gathering of people who belong to God's household. In a unique sense, then, we are the church, notice, of the living God, not a dead God, not a sleeping God, but of the living God, the God who always lives, the God who told Moses, tell them that I am. The God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The God who will never die. This living God is alive to his church. He is present with us even now by his spirit. We do not serve a God who was believed upon once and faded from the scene. We serve the God who always is, always will be. We serve a present tense God who is always with his people, who has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. This is part of our identity, beloved. These are not just truths about God. These are truths about us. We are the church of the living God. We are the assembly of the living God. We are the gathering of people who have a relationship with the eternal God who does not die. That's who we are. That part of our identity gives integrity to our behavior. And then he says a third thing. Now, this church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see how he's moving through different kinds of metaphors. He starts with a family metaphor, the household of God. Then he moves to uh, another kind of metaphor, maybe a, a social metaphor, the assembly, the church of the living God. Now he moves to architecture. You're the, you're the pillar and buttress of the truth. We know what a pillar is. We can look around this building and see them, the, the brick columns or the columns out back. And we, we know what a pillar is for. It's to hold up the building, right? So maybe you've done renovations in your home or you've watched HGTV and, and they want to they wanna open floor plan, right? They want to knock down all the walls. Well, the first thing you got to decide is which one of these are load-bearing walls? So please, beloved, if you get a house, don't just go in there with a sledgehammer and start knocking stuff down. Because some things are holding other things up, right? And so he's saying now, in the universe, the church is A, it's one of the pillars, it's one of the buttresses, or you may have a translation that says foundations. It's one of the foundations that's holding up the truth. Your existence gives structure and support and reliability to the truth of God. Your existence, our existence as a church called out to worship God, the living God. People from every tribe and nation and language, people of different ages and ethnicities, men and women, boys and girls, people who otherwise have nothing in common but God. Our gathering and worship and existing as the household of God is supporting the truth, number one, that God exists. What else explains us getting together? We don't like each other that much, right? We got other things we could do on Sundays. Some of you looking at your clock right now. Like, I know, Pastor, hurry up, land the plane. You know, there's, there's lots of things that could pull us in different directions. What pulls us together? Isn't it our common love for our common Savior? the Lord Jesus Christ. Our gathering and being his household is a buttress, a pillar, supporting the truth that God exists, supporting the truth that God really did send his son, supporting the truth that his son really did die for our sins and really was raised from the grave and really is reigning today in our lives and over the world. 
The church is the pillar and the buttress of the, of the truth. It is, it is supporting the truth that there is such a thing as sin and such a thing as righteousness and the two can't mix. Where do you find that in the world except in the church? The distinction between ungodliness and godliness, between lawlessness and righteousness, where do you find that in the world except in the church? When she's healthy and she's in obeying the instructions, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. You got to, we got to know who we are if we're going to behave properly. We are the household of God, the church of the living God, the foundation, the pillar of God's truth. Now, when we follow God's instructions, reminding ourselves that this is our identity, well, then we begin to bear the witness that God wants his people to bear in the world. We become as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, this, this stunning display, this, this revelation of the manifold wisdom of God to the universe. Isn't that what we long to be? What God has called us to be? The witness he has called us to give? The community he has called us to participate in? Isn't this the God we long to know? It comes through the instruction of his word and the embracing of our identity, which helps us to behave as we are. But now we're not only looking to be behaviorists, right? There's not something for us to do always. There's also stuff for us to believe, which brings us to verse 16. That if we're going to live as a church the way God wants us to live, in an era with so much confusion all around what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a church, etc., we not only have to behave as God wants us to, but we have to believe as God wants us to. And the believing, though it comes second in this text, actually comes first in our experience, comes first in our theology. Notice verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes there, he was manifested or Back up for a second. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Verse 16 then is letting us know that this is probably an early Christian hymn or an early Christian creed or statement of faith. If we were reading this in the Greek, we would be seeing the poetry and the symmetry and the structure. We'd be able to notice that it is organized in not just six lines, but, but kind of three couplets, three, three pairs of lines. And we'd be able to see, as we can in our English Bible, that, that these six lines are, are giving us a glimpse both into Jesus' earthly ministry, but also into spiritual or heavenly realities as well. The ESV begins it this way, great indeed we confess sort of alerting us to the fact that this is, a, this is an early confession of faith in the church. But the other translations bring out other aspects of this. So you may have the NIV, which says, beyond all question, which means that this confession was held by all Christians. Or the King James puts it this way, this way without controversy, great. 
right? So not only was it a confession held by all Christians and not questioned, there's no controversy about this. This is universally believed. The NASB puts it by it this way, by common confession. So again, it's getting at the idea that what follows in verse 16 is held by all Christians without dispute, without controversy. So to not hold these things is in effect to not in any historical and biblical sense be Christian. This, these, these are the fundamentals. These are truths we're meant to hold. And it's beautiful for me to think that this was perhaps sang in the early church. That this maybe would have had the effect in the early church as that new song we sang just a moment ago. You know, we were being catechized in that song. We heard lines from Romans 8 and lines that took us all the way down into Revelation. And we're being asked a question and we're given the answer. He is, he is, who's worthy? He is. That singing, that poem, that repetition was part of how the early church would have been instructed if this were a catechism or a song or a hymn. And we were doing a very similar thing this morning in that new song that we sang. So what did the church believe? What must we confess? What must we believe? Well, I want to organize this into three real quick subpoints. Number one, the first two lines tell us about Jesus' work accomplished. Jesus' work accomplished. Number two, lines three and four, tells us about Jesus' work announced. Jesus' work announced. And number three, third subpoint, tells us about Jesus' work acknowledged. Jesus' work acknowledged. So we see his work there uh, was accomplished. See there how it starts? He was manifested in the flesh. We know what this refers to, don't we? This is incarnation. This is the coming of the Son of God into the world, taking upon himself human flesh and actual body. So Jesus' coming the first time was not some spirit, was not some fan, fa phantom or something of that sort. He literally, really, really came in a physical body. He took on himself our humanity so that he could represent us to God. And while in our likeness, he did not sin. He suffered as we suffer. He tasted death for every one of us. He was crucified in the place of, of us sinners. Our punishment was laid upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. That's part of his work accomplished. But now, secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit. The word vindicated means justified. So he was proven righteous by the Spirit. Maybe Paul has in mind what he wrote over in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That when God raised his son from the dead, he was vindicating his son. He was justifying his son. He was saying that Jesus was right about all that he said and all that he did. Jesus was true in all that he taught. And I vindicate him in the power of the Spirit, and the power of the resurrection. So that was his accomplished work, from his incarnation to his resurrection. But then now we confess that his work must be announced. Notice, he was seen by angels. Think about this. He was, he was seen by angels. He was seen by angels before his incarnation. 
the angels, the holy angels have beheld him in his pre-incarnate glory. But he was seen by angels at his birth. You remember, it's the angels who first announced his birth, who say, you know, go to the city of David, a savior has been born to you, who break out in choir song, singing glory to this savior. He was seen by angels in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. And he's surrounded by angels even now. But not only that, not only was he seen by these angelic beings in spiritual realms, but he was preached among the nations. That's what happens immediately when when Jesus is crucified and resurrected. And when he's seen in the resurrection, the disciples then scatter from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth, all the way until the gospel reaches Anacostia. They spread and they preach and they make known among all the people of the earth that this same Jesus is the Son of God in flesh, crucified, buried, resurrected to save sinners from their sin. And so his work gets announced by angels and by men. And then finally, notice those last two lines. Jesus' work is acknowledged. He was believed on in the world. People not only heard, they also repented and believed. They put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Through the preaching of the gospel, God gathered to himself a household, a people who all have this in common. We believe and trust our souls to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, crucified for our sins, righteous in our place, raised from the dead three days later for our eternal life. It was believed on in the world. We profess that in baptism. We profess that in song. We profess that in prayer. We profess that in conversation. We demonstrate our faith in how we live in small decisions and big decisions. Even to this day, he is believed on in the world. And he gives eternal life to those who trust in him. And notice finally, he was raised to glory. He was raised to glory. He appeared to many after the resurrection in a glorified body. He ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1 with the disciples looking at him as he, as he rises in glory. And the angels speak to the disciples, why are you standing here with your mouth wide open? That's how it's translated in the Abonics version. Why are you standing here with your mouth wide open? All slack jaw. This same Jesus who ascends in glory will come again in the same glory. Even now, as he prayed in John 17, Father, glorify me with the glory that I shared with you from before the world's beginning. Even now, he sits at the right hand of the Father, the place of glory, sharing in glory, waiting to reveal that glory to the whole creation. He's coming quickly. He's coming soon. Maranatha, indeed. The text tells us that this is beyond all question. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the the revelation of, of what godliness really means, what it really entails. Godliness, we will have no godliness apart from the accomplished work of Jesus Christ and the acknowledgement of that work on our behalf. 
The mystery of godliness is not that we follow a tenfold path or a twentyfold path or we got 613 laws that we obey. That's not how you get to godliness. The mystery of godliness is that Jesus has become godliness for us. And it's through faith in him that all of his righteousness becomes ours. That's what's been revealed. That's what's been opened. That's the mystery that's proclaimed among the nations and looked into by angels. And the question this morning is, is that your hope? Is this what you believe? Is this what you confess? This means yes. This means no. Is this same Jesus your Lord? Thank you, Esther. Is this your confession? Because if it is, the promise and the reality is you have eternal life. You will live forever with God in a kingdom that has no corruption, that has no blemish, has no failing, a kingdom in which there is no pain, no betrayal, no sadness, no illness, no more death. Only love, only glory. That's your future if this is your hope. But now, if this is not your hope, if you do not yet confess this, start right now. I don't want to beat you up about your sin. If, you, if you're an honest person at all, you know you're a sinner. And if you have any doubts about that, ask people who love you. They'll tell you, you're just like the rest of us. We're all sinners. Right? And, and, though, and though I don't want to beat you up over your sin, I don't want you to make light of your sin either. Because your sin is against a holy God. And that God has promised that he will hold all of us to account. We will have to answer one day on the day of judgment for the sins that we have committed. And we only have two answers available to us. Either we will say to God, yes, I committed those sins, and I stand here in front of you, and I say to you, take your best shot. You don't want God to shoot his shot. Or we will say, yes, I committed those sins, and the thought of them break my heart. But you said your son would take my place on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and that you would raise him from the grave. And if I trusted in him, then you would not regard me as a sinner, but as righteous, and would accept me into your kingdom. That's the answer you want to be able to give God with a clear conscience and a sincere heart and a genuine faith, you want to be able to stand on the day of judgment and say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm also justified, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did for me. And God will honor that answer from every one of us. So this morning, if you're not yet a Christian and you've not yet confessed this, you've not yet put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do that this morning. Don't delay. Don't, don't, don't daddle. Don't tarry. Confess your sins to God. Confess that Jesus is Savior. Claim the promise of God to you that through faith in his Son, you would live eternally. And follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Do that this morning. If you do nothing else with the rest of your day or the rest of your life, confess Christ as your Lord. And beloved Christians, this is something for us to hold on to, isn't it? Just a, a couple of applications and then I'll be out your way. 
to the, to the creatives among us. You know who you are. Those of you who write songs and poetry and those of you who are artists and things of this sort. I hope you draw encouragement from the fact that verse 16 is a poem or hymn. That our God is a creative God. Gave us a whole book of, of poems and songs and the Psalms, didn't he? Right? But our God is a creative God. And, and the way he uses his art is to reveal and to reflect his glory. And I hope that you will do that too. Not, not all of your heart has to be quote unquote Christian art. It might even be better if it's not Christian art. Because Christian art sometimes kind of corny, let's be honest. But at least some of your art are to be revealing the mystery of godliness. Are to be revealing the, the grandeur and the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. He is the one who gave you the ability to create. And your acts of creation are imaging forth his own nature. Use that. Use that for his glory. I love it when we sing songs that someone in the membership has written. Love it. God is praised and glorified by that. I, I love it when folks go soca dancing or uh, folks show off their arts and their gifts in painting in other ways. Do it for the glory of God this creative God who's filled the world with creativity. You might be a novelist. You might be an essayist. You might be any number of things. But use that creativity for the glory of God. And when it comes to our singing, as we said a moment ago, let's continue to sing uh, the best kinds of songs. The best kinds of songs are not necessarily hymns and not necessarily choruses and not necessarily praise songs and not necessarily choirs or praise teams or solos. The best kinds of songs have this one thing in common. They tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Right? So whether that's a chorus or a hymn or, or whatever the accompaniment might go along with it, we want to sing those songs that, that do what verse 16 does. Reminds us of what Jesus has accomplished calls us to acknowledge what Jesus has accomplished, announces to the world, to the singer, and anybody else who hears, this is the Jesus we worship, and this is what he's done. And so we want to pray for the praise team, pray for ourselves, come ready to proclaim the excellencies of him who gave himself for us. And Church of the Living God, this is our common profession. Let us never swerve from it. Let us never turn from the gospel to false gospels. Let us hold this gospel as our life. Let us drink the sweetness from it and glory in it, who Jesus is and what he's done every day. Let us not shrink back from it, but proclaim it. From coughing in convo to personal conversations with friends, to letters written to loved ones or emails or texts. Let us stand on this pillar and buttress of the truth. Let us stand as that, as we stand on the gospel, the word of life. May the Lord give us grace to do so. We need instruction and we need to know our identity if we're going to properly behave and believe as God's people. For as long as Jesus waits to come, may ARC be such a church. And if you're ever in doubt about whether you need a church, just look at whether or not you're able by yourself to behave in all the ways that God requires 
and to believe all the things that God calls you to believe. If you're honest, you know you're not. And that's the evidence that we need the church. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we thank you for this mystery revealed in the gospel of your son. We thank you that he has become for us everything we need, a great high priest, a ruling king, a prophet who speaks to us. And we thank you that in all of his offices as prophet, priest, and king, we are drawn to you, God, through him. And we thank you that you have made us to be your church, church of the living God, your very household, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And we pray that we would really live into that, remember that about ourselves, rejoice in that. We pray, O oh Lord, that then we would bear the witness you would have us to bear to each other and to our neighborhood and to the nations. Write your word upon our hearts, we pray. Give us faith to keep us going, we pray. In Jesus' name.